0: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture
2: at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to the Intercooler podcast. Welcome to episode 159 of the Intercooler podcast, everybody, with me, Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel, my co-host. And we're joined this week by a guest, Gavin Green, um, who is an eminent Australian Car journalist, been living and working in the UK for a few decades now. Former editor of Car Magazine, um, and now contributing to the Intercooler. He's a fantastic writer. Um, We are delighted to have him on board. And in this episode, he explains, um, he talks about his early racing career and the crash that pretty much ended it all. Um, He also talks about how he got involved in car journalism, how and why he came over to Europe, um, and he talks about Editing Car Magazine. It's an interesting discussion and we also talk about what's going on in the market now that it's three years since Covid hit um, and caused all sorts of issues uh, in the car market um before we get into that though please let me remind you all to rate and review the podcast it's really important it helps us a lot and while you're doing it just open up the app whichever app you're using to listen to this podcast and hit the follow button or hit the subscribe button it really helps um, and it doesn't take you more than a couple of seconds so please do that and enjoy the episode we're joined this week by one of our newer writers um but also one of our most illustrious writers gavin green um Gavin, good to have you on the podcast. Now, um, it's a good time to have you on the podcast because as we record this, we've just published your most recent piece for the intercooler, um, which is about the Skyline GTR and the GTR that followed, the R35. Um, Now, you wrote a a lovely, quite personal piece about the time you have spent with those two cars. Um, Just give give us a few words on what the Skyline GTR and the GTR mean to you, because... I think it will open up an interesting discussion with Andrew, who perhaps doesn't feel quite as strongly towards the, the fast Nissans as you do.
0: Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. So thank you, Dan and Andrew. Um, yes, I, I, uh, I have a, quite a special place. Well, the GTR has quite a special place in my heart, only because um, I drove it when it was very new before. I think it was, I was certainly one of the first European journalists to drive it. And it came about in uh, 19... Um, uh, the late 80s, when uh, Kevin Radley, 1989, when Kevin Radley, car's Japanese editor, said, you really need to drive this car, it's absolutely awesome. And because Nissen didn't have much of a re- reputation then for performance cars, I have to say I, I was somewhat sceptical about how good he said this car was. And he then told me that he'd managed to gatecrash me into a Japanese journalist test at the Nürburgring, just for Japanese journalists. So I agreed to go, somewhat reluctantly. And went and drove this r32 skyline gtr around the ring and frankly i just couldn't believe how good it was we as i said in my story in the intercooler today um nissen had the very good fortune the day that we did it there was a, a track test run by a german motoring magazine using professional drivers and things like bmw m5s porsche 928s and the journalists in the gtr the skyline gtr were quicker than the Pros and the Porsches and BMWs. And I think that just gave an idea of just how incredibly capable this car was. And it's a car that I've always rather liked since then.
2: Yeah, and then followed up 20 years later um, by the R35 model. And you and you you seem to enjoy the R35 GTR as well.
0: I did, um, very much. I mean, I, I haven't driven it, to be honest, for, now for well over 10 years. So I haven't driven the very newest version. But I was asked to go and... Uh, track test uh, a prototype before it went on sale before it was even launched in fact um, and uh, and at a place called Sendai which is north of Tokyo it's a short racing circuit but a little bit like a mini Nürburgring with uh, lots of crests and fast corners and um, again I just thought what an incredible piece of kit it was so I mean I think latterly it, it obviously it's it's got a bit old and it's it's a pretty heavy old thing but it's still an incredible technical achievement I think and now this car is what 16 years old.
1: Yeah, I think it is. I was looking it up. Um, it has just gone off sale in the UK. I actually rang Nissan um, because it's not on their website anymore. But you can still buy it in the US and in Japan, so it's still in production. Um, and I think the only other car that is still in production that is as old as that car is the Fiat Five Hundred.
2: Mm. It's quite something, yeah. isn't it? It really so is. It's, quite um, something.
1: I mean, it's certainly. Uh, it's got the most extraordinary longevity. But I did drive one quite recently, just as a kind of like a sort of farewell valedictory piece. And although I've always been a bit critical of them because they've been, you know, heavy and expensive, and I kind of always thought I might rather be in some kind of Evo Mitsubishi or something like that, um, which would be like more practical and half the price. I was rather charmed by it this time. Oh, right? interesting. Because because I wasn't really looking at it as a kind of like a new car. It was almost. And you know, and the market and the cars that are out now are so very different. And it and, and it has a charm. Um it has a very analogue feel to it, which is increasingly rare these days. Um that engine is still that hand built engine is still absolutely amazing. Um and I just really enjoyed um
0: smoking about in the thing for yeah. a bit. And also, it's easy, it's easy to forget that you know that the GTR, Skyline GTR, the R thirty two was launched in nineteen eighty nine, and that's the same year as the M- the MX five and the Honda NSX, and in fact the Lexus LS four hundred. And it is amazing. What a year! It is amazing that arguably Andrew and Dan, there you could argue they're the four greatest Japanese cars, frankly, since nineteen eighty nine. I mean, they mm. were wonderful cars, and all coming out in the same mm. year. I mean, Gavin. Y- You will remember, sadly Dan
1: won't remember because he was three at the time, (laughs) Um, but you and I will remember that sense of, because there was um, the Skyline and the 300ZX was coming and there was, as you say, there was the MX-5 um, and the NSX and then the LS400 and actually even the Nissan Micra, Um, there were these world-class cars coming out of Japan and I can remember that sense of the European industry just going, what are we going to do about this? Because we just thought these guys were going to come over and just you know totally destroy everything that we you know that, that, that we always sort of you know, imagined to be the way things were
0: in, in in the business, and it's just strange that it didn't really happen. No, we had a heading in Car. I think it was to me about 1989, which said Japan teaches Europe how to build sports cars. That was our front page, right, our cover, and uh, and they did. And but you're right. I mean, that was the very end of the sort of the, the great years of Japanese industry too. In the 90s, of course, they had the the, the sort of the whole economy slowed down, and suddenly they just lost that tremendous confidence that they seemed to be building as the eighties progressed, and uh, and they never really they've never really regained it. Now, of course, in EVs, we definitely see the baton changing towards Korea and and increasingly China. Korea, absolutely, yeah. China, yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. No, I was just I was just gonna. I mean, I, th- I think really um, because there will be some people listening to this um there'll be many people who know exactly who gavin is and you know subscribe to car magazine and and, and have been reading his work there and, and elsewhere for decades but there will be some who, who don't so i mean can you just um tell us tell us a bit about you so you're clearly one of the many you're a member of the australian mafia um the group of uh, australians who basically came over here in the in the 70s and 80s and showed us how to be motoring journalists um you know and I grew up on actually not so much your work only because you know you're not much older than me but you know obviously Nichols and Cropley and Ian Fraser and you know all your predecessors um you know it's thanks to you lot that I do what I do because you sort of lit the fire when I was a kid um and then you were you were in Australia were you working as a motoring journalist in Australia because I know you were racing over there
0: I, I wasn't. I, that, that's where I'm different from my predecessors. And my predecessors in order were Doug Blaine, Ian Fraser, Mel Nichols, and Steve Cropley. So they were the four Australians that edited car before me from essentially the mid-60s till late 80s, which is when I took over, or 87 I took over. Um, they all, had, as I understand it, were motoring journalists in Australia, although before that they all had newspaper backgrounds, which I think is relevant because I think we were taught journalistic skills that perhaps some of them the contemporary motoring journalists in britain in the 60s 70s and 80s didn't have um, but they're all they're all newspaper journalists who in the case of those four they also went on to be motoring journalists um, and steve croppy very memorably working for peter robinson of course another um intercooler contributor um, i didn't uh, work as a motoring journalist in australia i was a newspaper journalist on the sydney morning herald and the sydney sun herald owned by John Fairfax. So they were newspapers. I'd never written about cars in my life until I came to the UK. But um, my dad was a well-known Australian rally driver and was essentially the Murray Walker of Australian television. He was the main commentator for Channel 7's motorsport coverage through from the late 60s all the way through to the 80s. Um, so you know, he, he got me into motor racing, really. And and my interest as a kid was not so much the motor industry, it was more car racing. And I was particularly fascinated by Formula One in Europe. My, my Christmas and birthday presents were airmail subscriptions to auto sport and motoring news. And in those days, they both came out on a Thursday and they arrived in Australia with a bit of luck the following Monday. And if they didn't, I was devastated. It, it ruined my week. And, <laughs> and I, particularly, I particularly loved my favorite motoring journalist was an American Formula One reporter called Pete Lyons who wrote uh, race reports for Autosport in the 70s, and I thought he was just wonderful, the way, the atmospheric way he painted Formula One racing. So my real love was motor racing, and um, I wanted to be a racing driver as a kid. Um, we know that many, many young boys want to be racing drivers as young boys, but at 18, I still wanted to be one, and uh, and I ended up buying a, um, a, a Formula V, which is a little single-seat racing car powered by a Volkswagen engine. In Australia in those days, Formula V was Bigger than Formula Ford, more competitive, there were many more races, it was also cheaper. And um, I started racing as a 19-year-old in 1976, um, and, uh, uh, and I was fortunate that I was, you know, I must have had a bit of talent because I was winning races halfway through the year, um, against sort of very experienced old hands. Uh, I was voted um, Best Young Newcomer for by the Australian Racing Drivers Club at the end of 1976. And, you know, journalists were writing nice things about me as being a, a young driver with potential. Um, I kept racing Formula V through 1977, um, was dicing for the lead of the uh, state championship, the New South Wales championship, and then had a pretty horrendous accident in August of 1977, almost exactly a year after I won my first race and badly smashed up my right leg. And um, uh, I, I had planned to go into Formula Four the following year. I had a sponsor, I had a car all organised, but obviously that put that on hold. Um, and uh, and I did go into Formula Four in late 78, early 79. Um, but then, um, you know, I, I didn't win any races in Formula Four, but I got plenty of seconds, thirds and fourths. But you know, I think I heard a podcast you did earlier on great uh, on overrated and underrated racing drivers, and I think Dan made the point about Johnny Herbert having his bad yeah. accident, and never never being quite as fast afterwards as he was before. I would, I, I'm not so arrogant as in any way to compare myself with Johnny Herbert, but I think there is something about a young driver having a really bad accident, and I think I probably was never quite as competitive afterwards after that crash. To be really honest with you, I think you're, you're suddenly aware, age twenty that you're mortal. And, um, even though I survived that, I, I survived that accident, but a motor racing photographer called Lance Rooting, who photographed me crashing. It was also on television live. My mother was watching it doing the ironing. Um, I think she burnt my favorite shirt, but, um, and also I might dad, m- my dad used to commentate on motor racing, but he, that day that I had my crash, he was in London about to start the 1977 London city marathon. So he was in London the day I crashed. So someone else was doing was a lead commentator. Had my dad been there, when this gruesome image of me cartwheeling through the air at 100 miles an hour was on, air, was on camera, I don't know what he would have done. Um, but I was carted off to hospital, badly smashed right leg, and I've had a slight limp ever since. Um, I'm getting a knee replacement this year, which is the after effects of that accident. Um, and I had a bent leg for about 20 years until someone straightened it. And as a, as a 19, 20-year-old, you're incredibly conscious, especially in Australia where you wear shorts, of the fact that I had a disfigured leg, so um, I think that did make a difference. And uh, anyway, so yes, I did. Uh, I did race in Australia. I was briefly thought of as a um, someone with future and a potential. Um, but uh, but and when I came over to Europe, I did race, but very much just more at a club enjoyment level rather than any serious intent. So. So that's rather a long way of answering your question, Andrew.
2: But. No, no, no. Well, I, I'm, I'm, but I'm interested. I've always wondered about motoring journalists who did some racing when they were young and were perhaps pursuing a career in racing. Do you think that experience, that all that circuit driving that you did, stood you in good stead for a career in car journalism for assessing high performance cars? Is there something in it, or not really?
0: I think I think it must have done because it has obviously made you a better driver. And mm. I was also very lucky yeah. when I was training to be a driver when I told my dad I wanted to be a racing driver and I'm serious he uh uh, he he wasn't rich but he paid for me to do a course at the Frank Gardner Racing Driver School now Andrew will know who Frank Gardner was perhaps Dan you're too young I don't know exactly who Frank Frank, Gardner is yeah Frank Gardner was a great Australian racing driver in the 60s um European Formula 5000 champion competed in eight or nine Formula One races um Lola test driver Brabham test driver um, went back to Australia, wrote a wonderful book called, uh, I think it was called the motor racing handbook or something. Frank Gardner came up with a line when the flag drops, the bullshit stops. You know, he was a very, very, very witty man, Frank Gardner. And and he had a racing driver school. And my dad sent me before I started doing racing as an 18 year old to Frank's course. And Frank, um, I learned a hell of a lot from Frank Gardner. And, um, he was, a he, as he he once said to me, plenty of racing drivers are fast not many of them know why they're fast I know why I'm fast Frank knew why he was good and he and he was very good at communicating that so he helped me a great deal so um I think with his tuition and racing for a few years I think it must make you a better driver and probably a better assessor of cars so I think it it did help me yes
1: so so how did you get from well firstly um what made you decide to um come and uh, live in the uk and how did you get from the news desk of the sydney morning herald to the yeah. editor's chair of, of car
0: magazine um i in 19 uh 1980 i was 23 years old i um i think like a lot of australians far more eminent uh, eminent australians than me i'm thinking of barry humphreys clive james who obviously were a fair bit older than me but I think a lot of Aussies in those days had wanderlust. They wanted to come to the mother country, to come to Europe. I think the impression was Europe was bigger and more interesting and more happening. I certainly had that impression. I I have always been very interested in European history and in Europe as a place, not just Britain, but Europe. Uh, So that was one reason. Um, I thought if I didn't get out, I would be trapped in Sydney suburbia for the rest of my life. And that was a slightly daunting prospect. Um... That's another reason I was keen to work in UK journalism, not really motoring journalism, but UK journalism. I used to when I worked at the Sydney Morning Herald and Sun Herald, I used to go up to the library. And I always thought the quality of journalism on The Observer, The Sunday Times, The Guardian, The Times was certainly a notch above anything I saw in my home country. And uh, then the final thing and the real spark was in 1980, Alan Jones was winning the World Formula One Championship. He He went on to be Australia's second world champion after Jack Brabham but he was getting virtually no publicity. And as someone who was still absolutely fascinated by Formula One, it really annoyed me that Jones, the, the, his win in Grand Prix, would get um, a small couple of paragraphs in newspapers under the Sheffield Shield cricket results. And I thought, this is just absurd. This um, this eminent and great Australian racing driver is getting no publicity in his home country. And I thought, I can help, I can fix this. So I saw um, my newspaper, Wheels Magazine, that's how I first met Peter Robinson, um, would he like a feature on Jones? Yes, he would. I saw the editor of a magazine of a newspaper called Auto Action, which is a bit like Motoring News in Australia. Would you like race reports? Because they didn't have their own man covering the races. Yes, they would. And I approached three radio stations: one in Sydney, one in Melbourne, one in Brisbane, saying if I got voice um, commentary from Jones, so interviewed him after qualifying and after each race, would they would they run it and pay me? They said yes. So armed with a portfolio of, of clients, I jumped on the, the Boeing, flew to uh, Frankfurt um, and uh, attended the last three Grand Prix in Europe of 1980. And that was the Austrian, the Dutch and the Italian, which that year was held in, in San Marino. And, um, and, uh, and with the idea of following Alan Jones. And I remember uh, turning up at the Austrian Grand Prix in 1980. In those days, it was quite easy for journalists to get accreditation. Not so easy now, but in those days it was quite easy and arrogantly thinking, Alan Jones will love to speak to me, because why wouldn't he? <laughs> and uh, I remember going to, qualifying for the first day of the Austrian Grand Prix, it must have been a Friday, going to the Williams Motorhome, and there was a huge queue of journalists, most of them British out front, thinking, gosh, this is, um, I don't really want to wait in this queue. And being brought up in Australian newspapers, you're taught to be an opportunist, and frankly, if you have to be a bit of an asshole, that's fine. And um, <laughs> just, just, just as I was... Uh, Contemplated going to the back of the queue, the motorhome opened and I could see Alan Jones with his PR lady, who I think was Anne Bradshaw, who I subsequently got to know quite well. And um, I saw my chance and I rushed up to him and said, Alan, I'm Gavin Green. I've just arrived from Australia. I'm here. I, they finally wanted to give you publicity. I'm here for the Sydney Morning Herald, Wheels Magazine, um, three radio stations, auto action. Can I have a word? And he looked at me and said, you can fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought, I thought, this, I thought this, I thought this has not gone well. <laughs> but I, but, but, I said, but again, my Australian newspaper background came to the fore, and I said, "Oh, come on, Alan, I've just flown all the way. I'm desperately keen to give you publicity. I know you deserve it." And I kept arguing, and he said, "Oh, okay, then." And he, and he ushered me straight in, much to the um, much to the much to the complaints of the journalists waiting, and I think it was Anne Ann Bradshaw. So anyway. Um, And in those days, I, uh, after every qualifying of the next three races and every race, I got an interview with him with his voice on a tape cassette. And then because I was so poor, then I I couldn't even afford hotel rooms, I would have to beg and borrow someone's telephone to... Um, put this voice recording on a tape through alligator clips down the telephone line to three radio stations, three times every meeting. Once after qualifi- two days after both days of qualifying and the race, but I always got an interview with Alan Jones, and I became quite friendly with him. But um, in as much as one could be friendly with racing drivers or, or famous racing drivers, and uh, I went to the Dutch Grand Prix, same sort of thing happened. Went to the Italian Grand Prix. I remember at Imola, um, I had. I, there was no hotel rooms available. So when I turned up on the Thursday night before qualifying, uh, there was the, the, in those days, most of the circuits had a place where you could turn up and there was like rooms available. Local people would rent out a bed or a bedroom. That's where I typically would stay. But in Italy, um, there was no such facilities, So there was nowhere to stay. And I spent the Thursday night sleeping literally in a field next to Imola Imola racing circuit, <laughs> in some farm field. And I remember the following day on Friday, must have been rather dishevelled, um, going into the pit or paddock. And quite by chance, I met a um, the PR manager of Goodyear Australia, who I vaguely knew from my racing life. I just saw him, and he came up to me and said, "Oh, hello." I said, "Hello," and he said, uh, "Where are you staying?" And I said, "I said, you see that field over there? <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm 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 sleep I'm sleeping in that." And he said, "Oh my goodness, we can't have this." So he said. Um, I've got a bedroom in a hotel in Bologna. Would you like to sleep on the floor? So I said that's fine. So I that's where I spent the next the next two or three nights. But it was an incredibly interesting time, and um, and I really loved it. And that's how I so that's how I came over came to be in Europe. Um, I didn't follow the 1981 Formula One season because frankly it was too expensive, and I wasn't being paid enough to justify it. But in during 1981, freelancing for The Guardian, The Express, AP, Reuters, literally doing freelance shifts, which in those days of Fleet Street were actually very easy to get. But during that time, um, Peter Robinson, who who always comes up when you deal with Australian motoring journalists, I had been riding for wheels. Robbo was over. He said, uh, let's meet up. Uh, I've got an Audi Quattro on test. Let's go for a drive together. So I met him at Carl's office in West Smithfield in I think it was May 1981. Um, I saw Mel Nichols, who I'd never met before. I had met Steve Cropley. Um, Steve was in deputy editor, Mel was the editor. I had met Steve Cropley, who followed a couple of motor races that I'd done, and he got to know me a little bit when I was racing and he was a journalist. And we became sort of friends, not close friends, but friends. Um, so I saw Steve, was introduced to Mel, and he said to me, uh, Robbo said, you know, you should use him, he's a good young writer. And Robbo said, well, have you got any stories you can show me? So I showed him something I'd just written for Wheels, which was a visit to um, Italy to look at this new Arna, that terrible Alpha nissan joint venture thing in 1981.
1: Nissan Sanctuary Europe, as it was known.
0: Exactly right. And anyway, Mel looked at the story and ended up running it. And that's how I got into freelancing for car. And I so enjoyed working for car as a freelancer. And FF Publishing's other titles, which were then executive car, truck, and truck and driver. Clearly, they were commercial titles. But I enjoyed writing for their, working for them more than Fleet Street. So I just freelance for them more and more and more. And I think Steve Cropley, who then became editor later in 1981, um, he knew that I was the sort of person that would do anything, go anywhere, work whatever hours he asked me to do. And I think he really um, respected that and gave me a lot of work. Uh, I got a lot of freelance work. And sometime in 1984... He sat, He for the first time ever, he bought me lunch, and I thought, something's coming up here. Cropley would never buy me lunch. T- budgets were very tight in those days, um, even though we were doing very well. And he said, Gavin, he said, um, I'd like to offer you a job. He said, in um, those days, he had one person working from the editorial, and I think there were one person on the art desk, and he said, we need a new person. And I think, frankly, um, if you hire, there's a fair chance you may succeed me one day as editor. And, uh, with that carrot, I said, well, that's very attractive. I said, what's the salary? And he offered me 13,000 pounds. And I said, Steve, I'm as a freelance, I own 23,000 pounds. So, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I took, I took it anyway. <laughs> and, wow. and, um, and, uh, and uh, anyway, and then, um, Cropley left in 1984, sorry, 1987. And, uh, that's when I became editor. So that's really how I got into, into car magazine. And of course, it was the most wonderful place to work because we're owned by Ian Fraser and Andrew Frankel. That's FF Publishing, a small company. Um, In the 80s, our circulation was booming. I think in 86 or 87, we became the best-selling motoring magazine in Britain outright. I think most people... Can I I just leap in here? Because you you mentioned Ian Fraser and uh, Andrew Andrew Frankel. I'm not that no, 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 no. Uh, I I should have pointed out instantly. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Astonishingly, there was another Andrew Frankel. I mean, it's not exactly the most common name in Britain. But Andrew Frankel, the advertising Andrew Frankel, has got nothing, uh, nothing in common whatsoever with Whatever. Andrew Frankel. <laughs> Whatever he wants me to do. Now? <laughs> and, and to be fair, Ian Fraser was the guy that really ran the shop, and um, and Ian was a wonderful manager because he he was happy to upset car companies. I mean, I, I have so many memories, so many memories of Ian coming into the editor, little editorial office, and he'd say. Good news everybody we've just lost Honda and we'd go hooray and then, <laughs> and, then and then a week later good news everybody we have just lost Volvo hooray and then and we <laughs> lost Volvo and Honda and Vauxhall because we pissed them off basically and but told the
2: truth was that basically at the heart of why car was so popular and so successful then because you would say it as you saw it and you weren't in the pockets of these car makers and people respected that
0: I think I think there's a number of reasons, but first of all, um, Doug Blaine and Ian Fraser, who really gave Carr its initial culture, they very much were of the view that we are not part of the motor industry. I think most motoring journalists in Britain in the sixties and 70s, Some of them were very good writers, technically very strong. You know, some excellent journalists, um, Lawrence Pomeroy, Ronald Barker, excellent, excellent journalists. But there was the, the publishers still felt, I fe- think, that they were part of the motor industry, so they were very reluctant to criticise them. Uh, Doug Blaine and Ian Fraser's view was that we're not part of the motor industry. We're like political commentators. You know, we are going to, where necessary, we will criticise and we'll criticise hard. So I think that was one thing. And by criticising, of course, you can be amusing if you're a good writer and Blaine and Fraser were. So so that added to the entertainment of the magazine. So I think that was an important factor. Um, And they were very good writers. In terms, they were journalistically trained. So I think their natural wordsmith skills were probably higher than was typical at the time. Um, plus, as time went on, uh, Carr really gave uh, excellent graphics, excellent standard photography. That it was the first motoring magazine in the world to have really excellent photos and excellent art direction. Um, and you add all that together, and that's a pretty compelling blend. And it was privately owned, so Ian didn't really care. He, Ian had enough money and enough success he was very happy to piss off the car industry. Um, so, and that I think that was the culture that I and Steve and Mel we were all taught that.
1: So I was, I was just going to say uh, I, I think that so much of what you guys were doing, um, you know, Mel and Steve in the seventies and eighties, and then you informs what we at <coughs> at TI do do today. And 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 to me, as somebody who, you know, I felt the same about car magazine as you felt about. Um, you know, order sport and Motoring News, if it didn't turn up, if it didn't, you know, it wasn't in the newsagent on the day you expected to be there. And for me, it was just all about the writers. Um, and you think of, you know, th- that sort of front line that you had of, you know, of George Bishop and, you know, Leonard Setright and Phil Llewellyn and, and, and Russell Bulgin, all gone now, Um And to me, it was, and this has informed so much of my life and so much of what you do at TI, it was a magazine you read for its writing, for its writers, as much as for whatever it was they were writing about. You know, those guys, they couldn't write a boring story if they tried. And so it almost didn't matter what they were writing about. And uh, I think what we have tried with the people who, like yourselves, now contribute to the intercooler is to do exactly that. We put together... A lineup of writers that people whose words people just want to read, almost regardless of whatever it is that they're that they're writing about, and that philosophy comes directly from what you guys were doing on Car, you know, forty years ago. Yeah.
0: yeah, well, thank you, Andrew. But and I also think we all, we we all had different voices. I mean, we didn't all say the same thing. I think it, with most magazines there was this feeling of what is the what is the editorial opinion. Car, different writers had different views, and that that was fine too. we were, we were all individuals. So, and I think when I. Um, so it was a wonderful, wonderful time to work i mean, and I was uh very privileged to be editor at thirty and i think as to i think as Austin Wells once said, I started at the top and I've been working my way down ever since <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh but you know, it was a wonderful uh and I love working there, and Steve was my mentor he was Cropley will tell you that Peter Robinson was his mentor. Well, Steve Cropley was my mentor, and Steve Cropley taught me so much. And he's one of my best friends and dearest friends to this day, a wonderful, wonderful man and a great motoring journalist and a great man. And, um, and you know, and I, I felt when I took over that I, I inherited something that was massively successful. And my job was to have a, heady, he, a, a steady hand on the tiller, and I, I, I did... I think I made a few good calls. I bought Russell Bulgin in. I felt we needed a younger writer, and that was clearly very good. Later, I bought in James May, and I was very proud of that. Before James was clearly before James was. What became out. of him? Yeah, I don't know what happened to him. I think he's disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but, uh, but you know, so we bought in a few good people, um, and I tried. Um, you know, I tried to give the magazine a bit more teeth. Um, when Steve was editor, we had the the good, the bad, and the ugly, of course, um, which which predated Steve, but but the good, the bad and the ugly was I always thought incredibly brave that you were categorizing every car in Britain as either being good or boring. So imagine how that pisses off the manufacturers. <laughs> but but Steve, and I think because Steve's a very fair, likable person, he introduced an adequate section in the middle. So we had good, adequate and boring. I instantly got rid of the adequate because I thought we have to go right back to just the purity of good, good and boring. So I did that. So I, f- I made a few tweaks, but broadly, I just kept what, uh, what Cropley gave me and tried to keep it going for the next um, five, six years that I edited it, but with a few challenges. For instance, um, FF Publishing sold the, ma- the company in 1989 to, uh, to Rupert Murdoch, to Murdoch Magazines. So that was clearly a major challenge, having brand-new publishers. Um, as it turned out, they were very good publishers because, unsurprisingly, Rupert Murdoch didn't interfere very, interfere very much with Car Magazine. He had rather more important publications to worry about. So he just basically gave us a decent budget, improved us, our distribution, and made Ian Fraser Managing Director, no longer the owner, but just now the MD. And when Ian wasn't spending his money, he was much more generous with the money, surprisingly. So we all got pay rises. Freelancers got pay rises. Our circulation went up, mainly because, I'd like to say because the magazine was getting better, but the reality was the distribution was getting much better. And the circulation peaked, I think, in 1991, at numbers that are just unheard of for motoring magazines these days. I think it was 141,000. Print copy sold at newsstands, which is just an astonishing number for UK, That's by, enormous, UK mot- by UK motoring standards. And uh, Colin yeah. Goodwin will give you the very number; he remembers it absolutely down to the last digit. But I think it was something like that. And um, uh, and um, and then uh, Murdoch uh, sold it in nineteen sorry in nineteen ninety one to to Emap, and he sold it because uh, Murdoch magazine Murdoch or News International was going essentially bankrupt. Because it's hemorrhaging money launching Sky television, and he had to sell assets to fund Sky, and he sold his uh, magazine interest, so we were then up for sale again, and we were then bought by emap, the the Peterborough based publishing house, so I had um, three different owners that I had to navigate my, navigate my way around so it had challenges, but it was still you know the the most enjoyable time of my life in terms of professionally was without doubt was editing Carl.
1: Can we can, can we just talk briefly? I don't want to go on too much about this because it's a publication that many listen to this will not have heard of. But no. when I was working at Autocar in the early nineteen nineties, um, we thought we were quite smart, and we thought we were quite <coughs> clever, and doing quite well. Mm. And then suddenly we heard about this this new publication called Car Week that yeah. was coming along. Um, which seemed to us very frightening indeed and we realized we had to really really step up our game not least because it was going to be edited by one g Green Esquire. yeah um and um and and just can you just tell us briefly um why car week came about um why you got involved with it uh, and why ultimately it didn't last
0: (laughs) well i'd rather not but i will I guess the, the best way to start the, um, the, the the sorry saga of Car Week is probably to go right back to uh, the days when EMAP bought Car, which, as I said earlier, was in 1991. And um, I remember they said almost straight away that one of their ambitions was to launch a weekly magazine. They very much saw Car as a launch pad to what they hoped would be domination of the UK motoring magazine market. Um, they were buying the market leader. Um, they clearly thought they were buying some good journalists and some good skills. And they went on to buy a classic car magazine. Um, they just launched Classic Car Weekly. Um, and they wanted a mainstream weekly magazine. They thought that was essential if they were to dominate the overall motoring market. Also, they were had a very good track record at weeklies. They published a very successful motorcycle weekly newspaper called Motorcycle News, which is really the Bible of... Um, for motorcyclists they had a very successful fishing title called angling times again the 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 sort of bible for for fishermen Um, they were both uh, weekly newspapers um they're also very strong in classified ads and emaps um roots were in regional newspapers so they understood um, the newspaper market very well and the weekly market um very well um and I think that's why they thought they could come in and beat uh, Auto Express and Autocar, who were the two current uh, current weekly magazines. Um, I remember uh, the editorial team of Car, when we were told that their ambition was to launch a weekly, we all thought it was, to be really honest with you, quite bonkers because there didn't seem to be room for a third weekly um, I think we all thought AutoCar and Auto Express were doing a reasonable job. Uh, Auto Express had only been out for some three or four years and they were selling way less than their initial uh, ideas. Um, so, you know, it was a very tough market. Plus the early 90s, um, there was a bit of a recession on, you know, car sales were hit. It wasn't a, a particularly good time to invest in, in motoring magazines. But nonetheless, EMAP were very, very keen to do it. And despite my scepticism... I guess if enough people tell you that it's a good idea, um, and you get a pay rise, right, and um, and you know you you keep hearing this is going to work, this is going to work, you believe it. So I um, agreed to be the launch editor, um, somewhat reluctantly. But the the more I heard about it, the more excited I got. And it, launching it was an extremely exciting, albeit um, very difficult uh, um, time. It was extremely hard work. But I think with um, eMap's pedigree and Car's pedigree, we were. And helped enormously by some very big budgets we uh, we brought in some some very skillful people we We brought in Alan Henry from Autocar to do our formula One reports we We hired some really strong young people, including Vicky, Vicky Butler Henderson, who of course went on to great things on television. Um, she was just starting her career then um, the format they chose was, uh, or we chose, was unusual. Because of their newspaper background, they wanted a newspaper. That's what Motorcycle News and Angling Times was. Um, the advantage of that was it would give us shorter lead times, easier for classifieds. And classifieds was a major reason for launching a weekly. Um, neither AutoCar nor Auto Express were, were good at either of those. EMAP had a track record at that. Classifieds, when done well, can be very profitable, so to an extent, we were um, we were going after the sort of auto trader market as well. Um, so that's one reason we launched with a newspaper. The actual format was a A3 um, enhanced tabloid um, on on newsprint, but nice quality, thicker um, newsprint. I think it was called enhanced newsprint, uh, full colour um, heat set publishing. So it looked quite good. Um, the The goal was one hundred thousand copies a week, and that was incredibly ambitious, because in those days, um, Auto Express and Autocar were doing somewhat less than that. I think Auto, Auto Express was about 90,000, Autocar about 70,000. So to be the new kid on the block and come along and be instant market leader was obviously extremely ambitious. Um, and it was a monster of a magazine too, an absolute monster of a magazine. Um, we had regional editions. There was a northern edition and a southern edition, mainly to help the classified ads. Um, it had probably twice as many words when it launched as, um, as uh, Autocar and probably and more than twice as many as Auto Express. So it was an absolute um, monster of a magazine. Um, but sadly, um, it didn't work. <laughs> so it was probably the, it was the most expensive uh, motoring magazine launch probably in British publishing history. And I doubt whether it will ever be um, exceeded. I think the, the launch budget, it certainly ran into the millions. They even um, had McKay Erickson as an advertising agency Um, taking out uh, advertising advertisements in major newspapers. Um, There was a win in Aston Martin DB7 competition. That wasn't cheap. There was a DB7 on display on the A4 near Earls Court, I remember. Um, So the goal was 100,000 copies sold. That's what we guaranteed advertisers. Uh, When it launched, uh, because of all the promotion, we did hit about 100,000 for the first few issues. But when it settled down, um, sales declined quite quickly to, I think, about Eighty thousand in the first three months, which is less than break even, and considerably less than we had guaranteed the advertisers, and um, slightly more than Autocar, slightly less than Auto Express. But as the months rolled on, the circulation dipped and dipped and dipped, and I think it settled down to about uh, fifty thousand, so half of what they'd hoped for. Um, so it was not only the most expensive uh, motoring magazine launch in UK publishing history; it was also probably the most, uh, the biggest. A financial failure in uh, UK motoring magazine history, which obviously was um, was, a, was a bit of a blow. Um, the reasons why it failed, um, I think the first reason is that uh, I think Emap felt that they were better at weeklies than Auto Express and Autocar, so there was a certain degree of arrogance. Um, we didn't have a better product than Auto Express or Autocar, so and when you're, you're the new kid on the block, unless it's a very special product, it won't sell. Um, it wasn't special enough. That means the editorial wasn't good enough. I was the editor. That was clearly my responsibility. Um, I think there was a lot of good stories in it. Um, we had a lot of good staff. We had some good writers. We broke some good news stories. But ultimately, just didn't offer a fresh enough voice to warrant beating the established magazine. So um, it, it didn't work. Um Uh, Another major reason was probably, in fact, the key reason was that the format was wrong. It was uh, a newspaper and uh, that might have worked for Motoring Motorcycle News and for Angling Times, which had been out for, well, in Motorcycle news's case, some 30 years, Angling Times even longer. When you've got a very regular, loyal readership, you can get away with um, probably having newspapers. But when you're new... um, uh, there was a major problem with where we were displayed. When the magazine was launched, it went on a special plinth at newsagents, um, which uh, which uh, uh, we paid email paid quite a lot of money for these special plinth so people could see it. Once the promotion ended in the early days, it, um, it was hidden uh, with the tabloid newspapers down around your ankle. So it wasn't on display um, up on the shelves, unlike the A4 glossy magazine. So it's no question the format was a mistake, a huge mistake, because people couldn't see it, couldn't find it. So anyway, for all those reasons, um, it failed. Um, it's also interesting just to uh, to look back on, I remember the early days of when it was being researched. I do recall very clearly um, some early research uh, being done when um, uh, we were told that the circulation would be about 50,000 copies. And I remember the we all, the management ignored that because it, frankly, wasn't the number they wanted to hear. Um, they wanted 100,000. The research company went away and did some more number crunching and came back and happily told us the sales would be 100,000, which, of course, is what the management wanted to hear. And everyone marched on their merry way. But of course, you know, guess what? The circulation did end up at 50,000. So the initial research was absolutely dead right. Anyway, um, it was a year and a half of my life that I'd probably rather forget in a professional sense.
1: I mean, I w- I was always very grateful for it because you know, at Autocar, we suddenly, because we had to suddenly step up because there was this, to us, what seemed to be an existential threat. Um, we suddenly realised that actually we hadn't been trying that hard at all. And I think that when I look back, you know, I was on Autocar from 88 to 96. And if I look back at the issues that I'm most proud of, it is no coincidence. There are all those issues that came out around the time that Car Week launched because we suddenly realised we had to we, we had to just completely raise our game. And that's when I kind of really learned um, just how hard I could work, just how hard we needed to think, how creative and imaginative. And, and I think an awful lot of that learning um, stayed with me.
0: That's all right. Well, and towards the end of it too, even though after I'd stepped down as editor, I was on the EMAP sort of management um, board area thing. And uh, I remember there was a very advanced discussions to merge Car Week with Auto Express um, because in those days the Auto Express was owned by the Daily Express and by um, the uh, Axel Springer the German company, and uh, there was talk about EMap essentially taking the auto uh, the daily express's share of it so there were quite advanced discussions in merging those two titles and I think had they merged they would have they would have called it Car Week that was thought to be the better name. But um, with a mixture of the staff from both, and they they were went quite a long way down the down the path before eventually I think it was decided that the deal wasn't right and it never happened and eventually Car Week closed and it's interesting because Emap um, uh, you know they, that lost they lost a lot of self confidence from that I remember one of the projects I worked on afterwards for Emap was a magazine that we called Petrol which was a bit like um, it had a little bit of Max Power's edginess Max Power was a very successful sort of lads motoring magazine in the nineties. The, actually the best Sony motoring magazine in Britain through much of the uh, mid to late 90s but this magazine was a little bit of Max Power's sort of youthful edginess and but much more serious journalism and it was we got to really advanced dummies and I always thought that was a very a promising magazine but at the last minute when I'd go to the management board to present please can we have the money to launch it they never said yes and I I often wonder what would have happened had that launched because I thought it would have been quite a fun, fun magazine. A guy called Bill Thomas, who you would know, Andrew, um, he, he, he was going to be the editor. Very, very sharp, clever guy. I used to work on Max Power. He's now the PR boss for, for Hyundai in Australia. All
2: right, so I'm interested to get your view, Gavin, on what's happened to car media, UK car magazines, UK car journalism in the sort of two or three decades since this period. Um, what, what do you think it's done well and what do you think's changed um, perhaps not for the better
0: that's a really hard question i mean obviously what happened in the mid 90s I, I stepped down from car at exactly the right time because um that was just at the birth of the internet and the birth of top gear and top gear clearly changed the dynamics with the huge backing of the television program and jeremy's rise to fame um, you know, it became the best selling motoring. Well, actually, Max Power did, but if you exclude the weirdness of Max Power, Top Gear became the dominant mainstream magazine. So, um, and Car, you know, that Car suffered, and, you know, to the reality is it's probably suffered a bit ever since, being it's certainly not the number one selling uh, print title, um, uh, which it had been. Um, and uh, Top Gear became the dominant print print magazine. I think, I mean, since then, you know it, the whole business has changed so much i mean there was no internet when i edited car um you know print magazine circulations all of them are way down on what they were but then you'd expect that on the other hand um the readership i mean i think uh, someone told me the other day car's readership is now higher than it's ever been because
2: of yeah, the digital of course, yeah.
0: the, the digital side so um you know it's it's wrong to say it's not as successful as it was it's simply not as successful as a print product um so um and i think it's fascinating you guys have you know launched something new and interesting and you know the the it's it, the the market has just changed so much and altered so much um where it's going to go to be honest with you dan you probably have a better idea than i do
2: well i hope so i don't know but we'll <laughs> yeah. we'll see i mean it's it's yeah. fascinating to hear you talk about it i mean i often feel like um i missed the golden era of car journalism particularly on the magazine side you know i hear guys like well both of you talk and goodwin and Suckley and harris you know all these guys who worked on the big magazines 20 or 30 years ago um and i hear the stories i hear about the budgets um i hear about the clout and i just think i've i've never known i've never worked on a title and felt quite the same way um i i feel like when i've worked on magazines they've been in a sort of steady state of decline you know they're getting smaller um fewer pages budgets getting trimmed on the other hand as you've pointed out on the digital side i think mid car media brands must now be reaching more people than they ever have done so it's this curious mix of um you know growth in one sense and decline in another so it's it's a it's a curious time but it, it feels like the right time for a digital startup to come along and try and disrupt yeah. it which no. is exactly what we're trying no, to do but we won't we don't need to talk about us too much
0: no but, but you're also right about things like budgets because car you know we would go on two three day photo shoots and and now often magazines would ask for a bit of help from car companies for certain certain big jobs we never did that we always self-funded um, um um, we'd go on press launches because everyone did that. But in terms of our own jobs, we always did it ourselves. And, you know, we had, we had some extremely big budgets. We'd go all over the place. We, you know, went to the Sahara Desert. We'd go, you know, around the world sometimes. Um, and uh, because we had enough, we sold enough copies and had enough ad revenue to make it profitable. And the the one thing with digital, of course, it's the, the margins are much, much finer. So um, I think salaries were probably... At least as high then, maybe higher than they are now, and I don't even mean relatively. I mean in absolute terms, because um, as Andrew said, in the early '90s it was a very competitive area, and good editors and good journalists were getting pay rises. Um, my pay went up massively in the late '80s, early '90s because, of uh, particularly uh, when, when when Car Week started launching, so because more we, people like us were in demand.
3: Um, God, that's so
0: um, so and you know so now I think margins are much finer. Um, motoring journalists, freelancers, the rates generally aren't very good for, in most of the magazines or newspapers. So it's very hard to make a living unless you do, um, you, you have to do some commercial work, you know, script writing or something, because otherwise it's very hard to make ends meet as a freelance. And that wasn't true 20, 30 years ago either. So, you know, there are some unfortunate trends. Um, I also think that cars, the way the car detached itself from the motor industry and really was critical of the industry, I think that's still a lesson. I think all you know, any journalist in, in an area of speciality, that was, a I think, a model that people need to look at. The, the fact that you're, you know, you're not part of the motor industry, you're commentating on it. By all means, compliment good cars, but be critical of bad ones. Um, it's harder now because cars aren't as bad as they were then. It was much easier to be critical of some quite poor cars than, than it is today. Now, I think the biggest criticism of most cars are they're probably rather boring. But that's, um, that's, that's, a harder criti- that's, a, that's a harder criticism than the, the ride's right. rubbish or the damping's rubbish or the engine's rubbish. So
2: mm. That's right. And I, I suppose it's easy to be hypercritical and be funny with it when you have clout, when yeah. you have yeah. an enormous audience and when you're a, yeah. a successful brand, car media brand. Yeah. Um, it's more <laughs> difficult when you do need the support of the industry, isn't it? And actually that's... You know, it's one thing that we think, um, among many things we have going for us, is that we don't carry any advertising um, at all. Certainly not from car manufacturers. And new cars are not what we're all about. So, you know, if we if we upset someone by sharing an honest opinion, so be it. No,
0: no I agree. But, and you're right. I think car, the, the one of the wonderful things about working there, and that really happy, to, well, I've got a happy life now, but it was a very happy life then as well, was um, that... You know, we did have class, and the and the car industry, mm. you know, they knew we mattered, and uh, and that's why Ian Fraser could laugh at losing advertising because it really didn't matter very much; someone mm. else would come along instead, and that is very rare today. I think you'd be a brave publisher to laugh to laugh at losing a major advertiser, but Ian was <laughs> quite happy to do that. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So, what have what's kept you busy apart from writing for car magazines um, over the last few years? I think you've done work for. Car manufacturers, other bits and pieces?
0: I've, I've done four. Uh, I, I wrote a uh, for the British Airways magazine regularly until uh, COVID sort of grounded it. Um, I write for Car Graphic in Japan. Um, I do commercial work for uh, mainly agencies, uh, marketing agencies, advertising agencies, people who may be pitching for new businesses um, might ask me for some insight into their brand or why they're strong or why they're weak. Um, I've worked for a content agency called Redwood, which, funnily enough, was the BBC Redwood was the company that launched Top Gear magazine. Then BBC and Redwood broke off into two, and Redwood uh, went off more into what you'd now call content marketing. So I've done some consultancy work for them. So at the moment, um, Dan, it's a mixture of journalism for for Car Magazine, for you. It was for the British Airways magazine when it appeared. Uh, Car Graphic in Japan, a few other people here and there. And um, script writing, speech writing, commercial books. I've done books for a few different people. Um, i 've just done a book for sans-seeker Luxury yachts, which is a bit of a weird one, but I quite enjoy doing that so um, so it 's a very varied portfolio, most of it I can do from home, which I enjoy so and i 'm busy without being stupidly busy so it 's really quite a nice quite
2: a nice balance and what gavin 's obviously far too modest to say this, but i 'll say it for him he is a fantastic writer, a brilliant turn of phrase, um, also hugely knowledgeable, massively experienced, of course. Um, but I mean if you haven't read his piece for the intercooler called the joy of maps go and read it he he writes this wonderful piece about maps um, and somehow makes it really moving and entertaining and insightful Um, and he's clearly not going to sit here and say he can do that but someone needs to stand up and say he's had this career because he's a fantastic writer
0: it's very kind of you to say that and I've um you know I've enjoyed writing about cars for what's now 40 years and it's just and I, I think, like you two, uh, um, I've always felt very privileged to be able to do this, and to have my career writing about something I really enjoy is just a, a huge privilege. So I'm, I've always found myself to be, you know, enormously lucky, really. So um, mm. and long may well, it continue. we, we are
2: <laughs> yeah, you're quite right. We are delighted to have you on our writing team. Yeah. Now, before we let you go, both of you, I want, um, I want both of you to chip in on this. I want your views. Um, we're going to do what goes up now, which is our market segment, where we look at what's going on in the marketplace. And this time we're talking about the car industry as a whole, because it is three years since, in the UK, it is three years, actually just over three years since we went into the first COVID lockdown. Um, And so I want to look at how the car industry has recovered since then. Now, as we know, COVID caused a massive shock to the new car sector to new car manufacturing. Um, the, the number of cars coming off the end of the production lines just plummeted for a while. But that was quickly followed up by the semiconductor shortage, quickly followed up by the war in Ukraine. Brexit was going on at the same time as well. Um, and now there are shipping problems in Germany, particularly affecting VW Group. All of these things have hit new car manufacturing and it meant that new car supply was on the ground for a long, long time. A consequence of that was that used car values rocketed. And we know that the, the used car market for a while was in this very, very odd place where values were sky high and people, in many cases, were selling cars that they had for a year or two years for a profit or at least getting their yeah. money back. It was. I was one of them. Well, there you go. And I, I don't think... I don't, you, if either of you two remember a similar time, you'll have to let me know. But it feels like it's unprecedented. Mm.
1: I, mean, I, th- I think that there are, I think there are two things going on here. I mean, firstly, there was um, the supply shortage caused by the chip crisis, which caused second-hand car prices to rise and, and stay. Risen. But actually, I think there's something far more fundamental going on than that, which is that, you know, with Ford canning the Fiesta um being the kind of the archetypal example of this um you know car manufacturers don't seem that interested in making affordable cars anymore um and actually i don't think they can make affordable evs anymore you know when you have the cheapest voxel corsa costing something beginning with a three um so you know so you ask yourself the question you're the sort of person who um, might be knocking about in a fiesta which maybe cost 15 grand well and you need a new car, well, how and you're going to, are you going to be able to spend twice that much um, on an EV which, you know, might well... Not search suit your life because you don't have a second car option. You live in a terrace house in the middle of a town. <coughs> and it's very difficult to use. So, you know, I mean, certainly everybody I've spoken to is in that position. They all just say the same thing. Just, they just say, we're going to hang on to our existing car. And while you have that view, um, new car sales are going to be kept down. And I just wonder how long, how sustainable this this new approach of, you know, not making small affordable cars and just making um, really expensive. EV. I don't know how sustainable that is um so so i think you know I, so i think it is that every bit as much as you know the short short-term chip crisis which is still existing but it's nothing like as bad as it was which is causing um the you know the the reduction in sales in the second-hand car market and 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 the you know and the maintenance of very very high value of second-hand cars yeah. because people just if no. they have them they won't sell them
0: and you've got astonishing things happening like ford you know the market leader for what 30 years essentially abandoning, in many ways, the, the mass market, you know, fiestas, focuses, um, and instead instead uh, gravitating towards things like this Explorer, Electric Explorer, which is, you know, and you think um, it's astonishing how... I think what's happened during the COVID period, a lot of manufacturers have actually made almost more profits than ever with fewer sales. So they realise the thing to do is to prioritise the, the the profitable models, the high margin models, and not the other ones. but And that just feeds the problem that you just mentioned Andrew um Mm, increasingly they're pushing their money into expensive cars because that's what they can make more money yeah
1: so so what I think is going to happen I think no I'll rephrase that what is happening um is that the Chinese will jump in and fill the gap yeah I think that's Um, right you know in in, in the same way that you know the Japanese did in the in the 70s and the 80s and the the Koreans did in the in the 90s and noughties I think the Chinese you know and if you look at a car like um you know an mg4 which costs so much less than an id3 um frankly a better car um i think that's i think that's what's going to happen i think that they have um created a situation opened up a massive gap in the market into which the chinese seem to be you know ready willing and able to leap so and, and i think i think i think they'll regret it yeah, i think they I agree. will regret it i think no, I agree. You, know, you, you abandon that territory at your peril because apart yeah. from anything else you know, the person who buys, you know, the young person who buys their first car, maybe they buy a second-hand Ford Fiesta or whatever, you know, they buy a good car. You know, they, buy, you know, they might be buying Fords for the rest of their lives.
0: Mm, but agree. if they
1: don't do that, they go and buy an MG instead because it's the only EV they can actually afford. Um, then you never even get to find out who they are, let alone enjoy their business for the next 40
2: years. I just think it's really short-sighted. Jim Holder from Autocar tweeted... Yesterday, I think. Um, that the average price of a new car in the UK this month is forty-eight thousand pounds. That's ridiculous. Average price. Forty-eight thousand pounds. Absolutely. So I, I now absurd. I now probably can't afford the average car in the UK. Which is just just astonishing. So also this from Autocar, on the subject of the recovery, how things are rebounding. Um Autocar four weeks ago wrote that the UK new car market achieved an eighth consecutive month of growth in March, according to the SMMT. Um, So things are clearly getting back, uh, perhaps not to where they were, um, but recovering. Um, And this quarter, the first quarter of 2023, has been the best first quarter performance since 2019. However, The market is still down almost 30% compared to the same period in 2019. So things are looking better, but still a long way off, a long, long way off where we were before COVID. Um, Now to paint a bit of a picture, I asked a question on Twitter. I did a bit of a survey of my followers to try and understand what normal people are seeing out there in the marketplace. Um, This is all anecdotal, but it's interesting and it paints a mixed picture. So I'm just going to run through a handful of these responses uh, somebody said, I'm a stock manager for a fran- franchise dealer, so I deal with both new and used cars. I can confirm that new car supply issues are far from over as yet and that used prices are still very strong. Good stock is becoming increasingly difficult to get hold of. Someone said, try waiting for a VW T6 Combi. 25 months and counting, no ETA on delivery or explanation. Um, Let's just do a couple more. I ordered a Skoda Octavia VRS estate in November 2021. Still no build date. I sold a car on eBay in 12 minutes this week. It was just a cheap Mondeo. But in 12 minutes after the advert going live, someone had bought it at the buy it now price. Um, A couple more. I had to settle for a two-year-old ex dealer demo Land Rover Defender with an extended warranty because it was going to take 15 months for a brand new one to arrive. Um, Someone else said availability is easy on most cars I'm interested in and I've negotiated well on used cars, almost normal in my opinion. So, I mean, there's a spread of of insights there, of experiences there. Um, But it's quite clear that some people are still feeling That uh, it's very difficult to get hold of a new car, and therefore, used cars are worth an awful lot of money. One more point. So, we work with a car finance company, JBR Capital, um, and it is literally their job to understand what's going on with used car values month by month in this country. Um, I asked them to look into this for us, and they said during the early stages of the pandemic, we witnessed a surge in demand for used cars leading to a spike in prices. We know that happened. A lot has changed since then, and there's been some stabilisation in the used car market. Price fluctuations have certainly calmed as supply has increased. This can be reflected in the high-end sector, as prices for luxury cars and supercars have, in many cases, stabilised in the past six months. What Goes Up is sponsored this week by car finance specialist JBR Capital. We've been working with JBR Capital for a while now and it's been a brilliant partnership for us. High-end car finance is all the company does, meaning it understands the car market and car buyers better than most. So before you buy your next sports car, supercar, classic car, luxury car, even a brand new car, Go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. Visit jbrcapital.com or click the link in description. And this bit is important. Tell them the Intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. I suppose it suggests that we're not back to where we were. We are still seeing these weird market distortions. But perhaps progress is being made. We're on our way back to where it needs to be. Gavin what do you think are you seeing this I,
0: I, I think that's probably the case but I also think we're in a chain we're in a position of such extraordinary flux at the moment within the car industry I mean Andrew mentioned yeah. the Chinese coming and I think he's right I think this is a huge a huge concern to Europe's car makers that essentially they, they're giving up in the fight against the Chinese in that mainstream market and of course once they get in the mainstream market they'll move they'll go up up market Um so I think I think Europe's in a very, very dangerous position with its motor industry.
1: But it's their um, fault. You know, they, yeah, they, they've yeah. abandoned the territory. They, no, they, they have, they've opened they the door. They let them in. They no, can't no, complain.
0: No. no. So, so the, I think we're going to see the most enormous changes as we transition towards electric cars with, I'm afraid, the balance moving towards China and Korea, probably in that order. Japan, I think, definitely third in Asia, certainly behind Korea and, and China. But sadly, I think. I mean, the Chinese—it's already the world's biggest EV market. They're the world's biggest maker of EV batteries. The world's biggest miner of, of the precious metal in batteries. Um, you know, I. I mean, companies like BYD are frighteningly profitable. Um, and you know, I, I think it's a very it's a very dangerous time for for, for the West. Um, probably, particularly Europe. I think America. Obviously, they. There's a fair bit of protectionism in America now. They've got the strength of Tesla. But Europe hasn't really got that, so I, I do think it's a very dangerous time for the European car industry, and that is something that I personally find sad because, um, you know, I live in Europe, and I'll, and you want a strong car industry in this country. It's extremely important for jobs and everything else, and and yet I think because so many car makers, not like, not these like Volkswagen, are transitioning towards China anyway, they're not they're not making this point. the, the I think the person yelling loudest is probably Carlos Tavares at Stellantis, who's been saying this for ages, probably partly because they're quite weak in China, so we can afford to. But, um, you know, I I, I just think a a lot of these warnings have fallen on deaf ears. And I, um, unless we start getting Iraq together pretty quickly, I do fear that the motor industry in this country is going to massively contract with a great
2: deal of loss of skills, expertise and jobs. Blimey. Well, we'll see how it unfolds, but we have to leave it there. Um, Gavin, thank you so much for coming on. It's been fascinating to hear you talk. Fascinating. And we are very much looking forward to you filing more copy because we love your stories.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you very much, Andrew. And thank you, everybody.
3: Planning for your next trip?